Mac Power Users, episode 334, Mac Power Users Live, recorded on August 1st, 2016. back to another episode of the Mac Power Users Podcast. I'm Katie Floyd, alongside with my pal David Sparks. Welcome, David, to another live show. Hey, Katie Floyd. How are you today? <laughs> I'm doing well. We've, we've got the show kicked off, and uh, we have our very good friend and audio expert here, uh, Victor Callao, is joining us once again on the live show. Welcome, Victor. It's so good to be talking to you again. David, Katie, how are you guys doing? Always good to talk to you. Great, great. Uh, we were chatting with you uh, last time, I think, about all of the amazing things that you were doing with audio. And we've got you back now uh, because that was kind of a precursor. You've actually produced something with it. Yes, uh, I produced a record, a CD, actually. And uh, it is uh, a jazz CD called Surrender. And I've been a jazz or musician since I was 15 years old, playing in bands and so on. And it's always been a part of my life. It took kind of a respite uh, when I started uh, working uh, the real job when I was about uh, 30 years old. Uh, before then, I was playing nightclubs and things like this. But then, you know, in the 26 years that I worked the, the real job, uh, music did take a back seat for me. And although back in 95, we produced another CD, I had not done something in the last 20 years when it came to producing, writing, recording. So my longtime 42-year friend, Joe Christina, and I partnered once again uh, on this uh, on this CD surrender, which we're we're very proud of. I'm guessing that uh, producing a CD in uh, 2016 and producing a CD in 1995 probably a couple of differences there, huh? A huge amount of difference, and and just the mere fact that you know back then we had to do it uh, in a studio. And we were using a uh, much different technology. It was still digital back then. We were using that technology called ADAT. But we were restricted in a lot of ways to maybe only 16 tracks of audio. Uh, and um, You'll never and use... need more than 16 tracks. Oh, no. <laughs> yes, I'll never need more than about 300 megs of, uh, of disk space either. Um, and so what's happened is, you know, since that time, this incredible revolution has been taking place. Uh, which the Mac has been such a part of in software, in hardware. And and today, I mean, the album that we produced, uh, you know, this year uh, would have cost literally hundreds of thousands of dollars to do uh, even, let's say, 25 years ago. And Victor, can I just start out by saying congratulations? It, it is a really good album. Well, thank you, sir. Coming from you, I will accept that because I know uh, how much of a uh, music fan and particularly jazz aficionado you are. Yeah, I mean, when you told me you were making an album, I, in my head, I said, Victor is going to, if he tells me he's going to make an album, he's going to make an album because I just knew you. I mean, you have the combination of musicianship plus you're enough of a nerd that, you know, this was like a nerd challenge to you as well, which we're going to talk about here in a minute. But um, I I just didn't, you know, I didn't know what, I didn't know what to expect, but I was just <laughs> blown away the first time I listened to it. I, I mean, I just was really impressed. So everybody, if you want to hear some some great music, Victor is, has has done something special with this album. So go check it out. We'll put a link in the show notes. Yeah, well, let's let's talk about that. We've got a link in the show notes to to CD Baby. Is that where it's exclusively distributed? Where can people find your your album? Not at all. You can find it 
everywhere now. CD Baby is a distribution point, and yes, you can use the link in the show notes for that. But go to Apple Music, listen to all of it for free. Go to Spotify, listen to all of it for free. Go to YouTube, listen there. So now uh, the distribution is pretty wide now, title, all of it. And so lots of opportunity for you to take in the music, listen to it. And then if you you know want to support the indie artist here, I absolutely will say Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Well, I definitely want to talk to you about that distribution, but that's kind of towards the end of the the process. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, kind of first thing first, you know, getting together and and writing and recording this music. Now, I know that you are a a big Mac aficionado, that that you are formerly of the typical Mac user podcast. And I know that you know know that you now have the the TerraTech podcast that we'll, we'll put a link to as well. But tell us a little bit about just some of the hardware and software that you you used, because uh, Mac Power users uh, love love to know about the the, the technicalities and the, the toys involved. Absolutely. And this this album would not have been possible if it would not have been because of where we're at today in, in Macintosh hardware specifically for me. So let's talk about just some of the baseline systems for me as I have a 24 uh, inch, uh, sorry, a 2014 iMac 5K, you know, loaded up. Uh, 32 gigs of RAM, um, only a half a terabyte spinning hard drive, but I have a lot of connected devices through Thunderbolt, uh, a Promise Pegasus R6 loaded up uh, with uh, four terabytes of RAID 5. Uh, I also have a uh, OWC um, with four terabytes of RAID 5, you know, so lots of backup strategy, Chronosync constantly doing backups of whatever I was doing on the PC. If I went off to do a a remote recording session, as soon as I got home with my um, drive and plugged it in, Chronosync would recognize it, put it up in the cloud, put it in one of my back storage. So all of these things were very necessary to do this. And then on the software side, uh, let's start with that. Logic Pro was the key to getting the music um, starting to be written. Yeah, no, just I'm curious there. Why did you choose Logic Pro? I mean, there's a lot of different options out there. And and what is it that made you decide to use Logic Pro? Well, at first it was my lack of knowledge of Pro Tools, which is kind of like the industry standard out there. But as I did finally go and learn Pro Tool, and that's what we use to record the musicians eventually, I came to find out that I was very smart to use Logic Pro because it is a much richer writing environment. The musical digital interface implementation of Logic Pro is superior, in my opinion, uh, to uh, Pro Tools. The virtual instruments that you get when you buy that wonderful $200 piece of software are incredible. Thousands upon thousands of dollars worth of software instruments that when you're writing, when you're doing that first phase of creativity, where it's just you, a MIDI keyboard, but you want to get the idea across maybe to your writing partner or to musicians that are going to eventually play on it for real. Logic Pro has all the facilities and all the automation and everything I did it. I could have done the entire project in Logic Pro beginning to end without a doubt. And it wouldn't have been a, pro- a problem at all. I chose Pro Tools because it was my opportunity to learn Pro Tools as deep as I wanted to. So I took that opportunity. Yeah, you know, you make a good point. So there's a lot of folks out there who are probably musicians to some degree or another. And I have a MIDI keyboard. It's a Yamaha. And the Yamaha keyboards, it's it's a basic one. It's not super fancy, but it is weighted. So it feels like a piano when you play it. Lovely. And um, But the Yamahas, 
really have a reputation for being very bright. In fact, that's the reason I bought it. I like the bright piano sound that they have. Uh, but sometimes I don't want that. And when I used Logic Pro, which I think you're right, I think I paid all of 200 bucks for it. Mm-hmm. There's like, there are, I don't even know how many piano sounds there are in there, but I want the dark piano sound. I want the stage piano. I want the honky tonk, whatever piano sound I want. I've, I've got that. So if you're a musician out there and you want to upgrade your your software and your instruments, putting Logic Pro on a laptop, it's a pretty good way to do it. And it's pretty economical. Yeah, it's a wonderful way to do it. Yep. So this is probably a, a basic question, but forgive me, I'm not a I'm not a musician. How do you actually I mean, you've you've got multiple instruments, multiple tracks worth of instruments. We know more than 16 um, that you're that you're laying down for this. How do you actually get the saxophone in there? How do you get the drums in there? How do you how do you get that analog music that you're playing into the digital track? Sure. So let's move over to that. Um, and so after the music has all been written and we have a demo that we give to the musicians live and we score out music, my uh, partner uses a program called Sibelius to literally write music through the computer as sheet music. And so now we've set up recording sessions and, and we use uh, one of the necessities was a very, um, very good audio interface with very good uh, analog to digital converters. I happen to be using the Universal Audio Apollo 8, which is a, a very high quality uh, unit uh, at about the $2,900 range. Uh, it, it comes with a, a bunch of wonderful plugins which allow you to emulate uh pieces of gear from the 70s and the 80s, digital delays, compressors, and all of that. So on a typical session, if they weren't coming here to my house, I would take a MacBook Pro, 15-inch, latest model, 16 gigs, and I would take the Apollo interface with me. And uh, if it was a instrument like a bass or something, they could p- plug directly into the interface. If it required a microphone, like a vocalist, I would take the microphone of my choice, which is a Mojave Audio 301 FET, and then simply just, you know, those three pieces of gear and the singer... And I could track um, the track very easily. I would use Pro Tools to play back the song. The singer would be listening in headphones, just like a podcast. They're simply recording a track now onto the Pro Tools project to add their piece of the pie, if you will. With drums, it's a little more complicated. Yeah, let's get to the drums in a minute. But it's funny, a lot of people probably don't realize it. Like, one of my favorite albums is Miles Davis' Kind of Blue. And my understanding is they, they recorded it in like a day and a half. It was just, they went in the studio, they turned on the microphone. I almost feel like sometimes those guys were just trying to get the album recorded so they get back on the road. It, it was a different time. But with the stuff you're doing, uh, did you ever have all the musicians in one room? No, I wish I would have had that luxury. I would love to do an album that way, but that is just cost prohibitive. So uh, what we had to do was... You know, we had to bring that vibe that was missing by not having the musicians in a room. And there is something special that happens when that happens, you guys, without a doubt. So what I had to do and what Joe had to do as producers is when I went to, you know, the bass player's house to record, I had to kind of bring that vibe that wasn't there in the room with me and kind of explain what's going on. And we listened to the song before and, you know, to have them groove and and, and a matter of grooving is you know, making an ambience and and you can do that, but it's never the same as, you know, that kind of blue experience where, where you're capturing the moment and magic. Uh, it's not the same. That doesn't mean it's not good. It just isn't that experience, David. 
All right. So again, forgive me, the non-musician here. You guys probably are assuming some of this, but so you you had all of the parts for the basic, for the different instruments written out. You would go out and you probably knew some of these musicians. You probably went out and hired and auditioned some of these musicians and you actually went to their house or brought them to your house to record? All of that. Wow. All of that. Yes. We use five different recording studios, mostly home studios. The drummer and percussion is a wonderful drummer and percussion. His name Alex Acuna. Uh, this is a big time musician. Yeah. yeah. You just you can't just pass over that. I mean, when I, you told me you had him on the album, I'm like, whoa, this thing just got real. You know? Yeah, it did get real. Alex is it played for a group uh, called Weather, um, the Weather Report, and uh, he's an amazing drummer. He's 71 years old now. He just did all of the percussion and drums on the movie Jungle Book, for example. So he is very much still a studio working musician. Always wanted to play with him. I wrote him a letter and said, look, I'm this retired guy. This is what I want to do. I have no idea if I can afford you. What will you charge me? Came back to me and said, if you'll do it at my house with my engineer, you know, so that I don't have to move anything, I'll do it for this much money. And I said, you're on, dude, because I wanted to build a house based on a really great foundation of a musician that I've admired all my life. And so we went to his house and there, you know, the whole fancy mic set up, his engineered using Pro Tools. I mean, the drums alone, Katie, were 19 tracks for drums and percussion only. We hadn't even gotten to the first other instrument yet. So uh, that foundation happened. And then, yes, we would go to the bass player's apartment in Long Beach with a direct box, and he recorded all the bass parts. I would go to a church where we loved the piano sound, and I would take a pair of stereo microphones and record the pianos. Uh, you know, it was done in all kinds of places like that, you know, usually with me bringing that MacBook Pro 15, the Apollo interface, one of two that I have, and then, you know, microphones if I needed them, and then come back home pour that all into Pro Tools on my Mac and then start, you know, doing the rest of the production process. Wow. I'm just kind of struggling to envision that you can do this now. It's just, it's, it's kind of amazing because I've always seen, and again, a lot of this is just what you, what you see on TV or not, that you had to record these types of albums in a studio where you can control all of the conditions and, and have, you know, soundproofing and all of that. But can, I mean, I guess you, you do that to the extent that you can, but do you just take care of, you know, when the garbage truck goes by, do you take, do you fix it in post or, you know, how do you, how do you normalize for some of that stuff? Well, you certainly try to uh, record things like vocals and um, acoustic guitars and, and horns in places where you do have some control. And we did do some of that. But yes, you're right. Some of that can be fixed in post. There are a couple of wonderful plugins, again, that you can put into Pro Tools uh, that, uh, you know, absolutely will take out sound without getting any artifacts in it. Now, is it perfect? No. But is it good? Yeah, it's very good. And, uh, you know, I definitely will say, listen to the whole album and you will not hear anything that you would be able to say, oh, I bet that wasn't done in a, you know, $1,500 a day recording studio. You, you won't be able to tell. Yeah, it's, it's really possible. Didn't you tell me at one point you even had some musicians that were Dropboxing you files from across the world? Absolutely. We uh, One of our guitarists is a guitarist for a Latin artist named Gloria Trevi. He is on the road. Uh, we needed him to do a solo and a lead line on a song. He did it in his hotel room, put it into Pro Tools, dropped it in Dropbox. I picked up the file, uh, dropped it into the project, and uh, that's it. I was ready to go. All I had to do was, uh, again, post-processing, add reverb, compression, and it was good to go. Yep. How long did it take you to get 
assemble all the audio or was that something that was kind of done while you were editing? It was done uh, certainly all along. We started recording musicians uh, about March, middle of March of this year, 2016. And we ended, geez, like July 1st. So that's how long it took to get all the players. And all of that, a lot of that, which is scheduling, we could have done it much quicker. And the process of me mixing the record, making the sonic sound like I wanted, adding spatial differences between, you know, when you hear a sound, the left and right, and how does music move? And is it it's a vocal right in front of your face or the saxophone? Where is it back? All of that is called mixing. And that process, uh, you know, I learned and, and I did it all the way through when I was done mixing. I had a very, uh, another fortunate thing. Uh, I, I hired a, a, a five-time Grammy award-winning uh, mixer uh, named Peter Karam, who was the mixer for Pat Metheny. He won a Grammy for the Jersey Boys uh, Broadway soundtrack. And this guy's been in my ears for 15 years. And so I, again, wrote to him and said, look, I don't know if I can afford you, but would you know how much would you charge to mix me this album and master it? And he gave me a prize and I couldn't afford that. So then I said, okay, what if you just master it and mentor me through the process of mixing it? I will send you mixes and then you critique them with no hold bars. I don't want you to, you know, whitewash anything. And he said, you know, we got on the phone. He's a Mac geek. We started talking about photography. And after an hour conversation, he was like, sure, I'll do it. No problem. And so he mentored me month after month to the point where it was like, okay, this is sounding exactly what I heard in my head when I first wrote the song. And that's really impressive. I mean, so, so you, and you didn't mention earlier that you actually play on the album as well. Um, but, but you're one of the musicians that was recorded. The album. Yes, I am. I'm a saxophonist. I play, I programmed all the synthesizers. I played most of the synthesizer sweeteners. And I, if you listen way back there, I even sing on one of the songs, but Barely. Well, wait, wait, which track did you sing on? I have to go back and listen oh, to that oh, now. Dark Knight, the very last track, there is a Spanish choral section that uh, I'm, I'm in there way back there. Yeah. All right. I will be listening to that tonight. Okay. But so you were, so not only were you doing the musician work, you were also doing the mixing and kind of the post-production. And I do know that talking to you as you're going through this, you were kind of using it as an excuse to learn a lot about doing post-production. Yes. So what are a few tips that um, Mac Power users may be interested in that you learned in that process? Well, and I think these tips go just beyond just making music. I think the tips that were really important when doing mixing was the importance of little tiny moves can make huge differences. So, you know, at first you're trying to get the levels all correct, and maybe you're you're starting to put in plugins because you want to hear certain delays or certain sounds. And what we all tend to do, whether it's music, photography, or maybe even writing real words, is that we tend to overdo things. It's too much of this or too much of that. And so the process that I learned was that the littlest, tiniest moves, you know, I might take a guitar part that was sitting on the right-hand side of the speakers, and I may put a panning automation on it so that every two bars, it's very slowly moving from left to right. And those tiny moves made a huge difference sonically. So those were the things. And part of the learning process is, you know, that trial and error Every mistake you make is that learning opportunity that lets you say, okay. And so tiny moves make huge differences at the end of the day, right before we said, now this is baked. It was, I was doing one or two things that I wasn't letting it rest. I would listen over and over and say, okay, that vocal is just a tiny bit too much. Should I let it go? And I'd say, no, let's go ahead and do another mix with it with 2 dB less 
and then it come back and go, okay, all of a sudden it's just sat in place. So that's what it is. It's a, it's a very uh, slow process, but you have to be open to learning the whole time and not get frustrated and learn how to do subtractive things. Instead of adding EQ, take away EQ because the moment you do that, you're leaving room for something else. If there are guitars and saxophones playing at the same time, well, you think, well, let me just boost the saxophones. No, take the guitar frequencies, you know, maybe five, 600 hertz, bring those down on an EQ, and now you've left sonic space for the saxophones to shine, that kind of a thing. Well, Victor, I know we're we're running a little long here, but we definitely want to talk about distribution. Would, would you mind hanging on a little bit after, and let's take a, a quick break, and then we'll come back and talk about the distribution piece, because I'd love to pick your brain more about this. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Daylight from Market Circle. Let them know you're a Mac Power Users listener and you'll get 50% off your first monthly subscription. We've been hearing from the listeners and a lot of you are Daylight users from Market Circle. And why shouldn't you be? If you're tired of wasting time looking through notes and files or email folders, or if you hate having to ask people around the office when was the last time someone spoke to a client or how each project was progressing, Daylight can solve the problem. Come clean and uncluttered with Daylight. Daylight's a business productivity app made for entrepreneurs and small businesses. Daylight helps you keep everything under one roof and shared with your team. Daylight is a native app made exclusively for the Mac, iPhone, and iPad. You get the best of both worlds because you have access to your critical business information when you don't have the internet, and you get the convenience of being synced in the cloud. Starbucks Reality Group in Colorado uses Daylight to segment customers for marketing campaigns, to track property sales, and to share tasks with each other. Cambridge Management Sciences in the UK uses Daylight to store, action, and delegate emails right within Apple Mail. And BizExpand in Austria uses Daylight to track activity with leads, build custom sales funnels, and report on sales opportunities. These are just a couple examples, but my point is that Daylight can adapt to your needs. Market Circle is a company with a long history on the Mac, and it's full of smart people that love the Apple ecosystem. You can really trust them with your business. And Daylight gives you a unique combination of native app experience with cloud-based syncing that simply doesn't exist anywhere else. Reading the Mac Power users' email, a remarkable number of our listeners are already successfully using Daylight to run their business. Whether you're solo or you have a team, you should check it out as well. Learn how businesses are maximizing productivity gains with Daylight on Market Circle's website at marketcircle.com slash daylight, spelled D-A-Y-L-I-T-E. And be sure to let them know you heard about Daylight through the Mac Power users. If you do, you'll get a 50% discount on your first monthly subscription. Thanks, Daylight, for sponsoring the Mac Power users. So, Victor, one of the things you mentioned is this is clearly a whole new world since the last time you've you've done an album. I know it was in the in the mid nineties. We we just started getting. I think iTunes Music Store came online in the early two thousands. I mean, there was obviously some uh, digital distribution, probably not all legal, going on in the late nineties and the in the early two thousands. But I, I was shocked when you said. Um, that you're now on iTunes, you're now on Tidal, you're now on Apple Music, you're, you're on Spotify, you're on YouTube. How did that happen? Well, I have to really thank CD Baby and kind of like the one-stop shopping they provide for independent artists like me to be able to do that for a very reasonable cut. 
you're right. I don't have a, a record company that's backing me in a marketing arm that can take care of making that uh, songs go all over those places. So for me, I did some research and found that for me, CD Baby was going to be a place that I know would let me put it out just about everywhere I wanted to, and they would take care of all that back-end stuff. They have the relationships with Spotify and Apple Music and Tidal. And so what I all that I had to do was provide the music uploads to them that met their standards when it came to loudness and quality. And then I had to uh, provide proof of ownership of the songs that we wrote. And on the one song that we didn't write, I had to provide proof of ownership of me going out and getting the rights legally to use that song, which I did. Uh, it's about $360 for one song to be able to use it. So we had to, you know, dot our I's and cross our T's. And the Spotify process, they have an inspector that goes through everything for you. And then once it clears that inspection, they just shoot it out there to all of those distribution points. And then, you know, listings can happen there, sales can happen there, and it all kind of funnels back through. To them, if, for example, if you buy it on iTunes, I'll eventually get the money through Spotify. It'll be less than I can make on uh, CD Baby directly, but nevertheless, it's out there. So they've made it really easy to do that. But very important, if you're thinking about doing this, you have to protect yourself by getting yourself legal in an organization such as ASCAP and BMI uh, so that you have your intellectual rights covered for playback. You also have to create a music um, publishing company of your own. Again, I did it through ASCAP. It's not very expensive, but you have to cross uh, those T's and dot those I's um, in order to make sure that you're covered and no one can steal your intellectual property. Wow. So are there other services like CD Baby? Did you have other ones that you could compare and contrast? Or was this kind of really the one-stop shop of, you know, once you once you uploaded to them, then they took care of going out to all of the other services? There are several others that will do similar types of things. Uh, what I liked about CD Baby is that um, it was kind of a one-stop for me. It was not too expensive, about $100 to to publish and create an account with them, and that I could uh, send them physical CDs. You know, we have had physical CDs made. I can send them some of those for them to stock, and you'll be able to go there and, you know, also buy a physical CD, and they'll ship it to you and get it there. So to me, it really had the best of everything for this kind of project in in the kinds of volumes that we're talking about. I mean, we're talking about jazz here. Uh, It's not going to be thousands of units. I had to laugh when I bought my copy that, you know, you've got different download options. Mm-hmm. And one of them is you can download the album in FLAC. And I'm like, of course, Victor's album would be available in FLAC. I mean, <laughs> why wouldn't it be? That was a <laughs> deep consideration for me. I wanted to make sure people could have the, the highest thing. And one of the things we're going to do just to take 30 seconds is we're going to take two of the songs and we're going to make all of the tracks of the songs available for sale so that if you're an independent mixer that's learning how to mix, you'll be able to go out and buy like for $15 every track of the song Surrender. And then you can go and do your own mix and put it on YouTube and do whatever you want with it as long as you don't make money on it and uh, have at it. And so we felt that was an important thing to do for young mixers out there that want to learn how to mix this style of music. So we're going to do that for two songs and make that available as well. How many tracks are on the Surrender? Uh, song. The, the Surrender song is 74. Uh, yeah. Typical uh, was between 60 and 70 tracks for each song. Wow. Yeah. So that, that'll be fun for somebody to go in and kind of play with the knobs a little bit. 
Yeah, that'll be available to all of you. You can do it in GarageBand, you can do it in Logic, and it is fun because they will be completely dry. They will be exactly how I got them when I recorded the musicians. It'll be up to you to, I don't care if you put a hip hop beat on it, go for it. You know, do a mashup. Again, as long as you, you know, link back to us and and it is not commercial. So what was the biggest surprise you had, you know, producing an album in 2016? I think the biggest surprise uh, for me was the, some of the cohesive things you talked about earlier of not have, being able to have the musicians in the same room. Specifically speaking, the horn section, saxophones, trombones, clarinets, uh, winds. Uh, having those players not be together in the room created some intonation problems, not because the players weren't playing in tune, because of what happens when you play in a section together and you're listening. So we lost some of that. So I had to go in digitally and literally on a note per note basis, sometimes take one note and use a plugin to bring the note down by five cents lower for the pitch or, or alter the pitch up by five cents. Now, I was able to do it, but it's very razor thin surgery that would not have been necessary if the players would have been playing in the same room. Yeah. Well, and I guess my follow up question would be, what was your biggest challenge? And it sounds like that may be the same answer. Um, yes, I think my, my biggest challenge was, um, my bank account was getting drained pretty quickly and a little quicker than I thought (laughs) it cost about twice as much as what I thought it was going to cost to do it. Now, again, a lot of that is a capital investment that I'll be able to reuse. Thank goodness. Well, you got some good equipment you, and you worked with some really remarkable people and, and, and it shows that as they say, the proof is in the pudding. This is an amazing album gang. Go listen to it. I didn't know you could listen to it in Apple music, but just go buy it in CD, baby. You know, Victor's one of us. You know, support the guy. Yeah, you can also buy it on iTunes now, but uh, it's available to listen to an Apple Music. You can buy it through iTunes. Um, and then I guess you can buy it direct through CD Baby. You probably get a little bit bigger cut if they do that. Yeah, but you guys, give a big hint. It's like $2 cheaper on iTunes. So, you know, it's, that, that's fine. Oh, is it? Yeah. Okay. And if you're, but you don't get flack. You, know? you don't get black, right. Uh, and if you're an independent artist and you're looking for a producer or somebody to help you musically, I'm available for that too. Absolutely. So what's next, Victor? Are you going to do another album? Do you want to help other people work on their albums? Or is your, is your second career going to be uh, producing music for yourself or for other people? What, uh, what's next for you? Yes. <laughs> you're, you're still a young man. You have, you have plenty of time. Yeah, and with this career, every day is Christmas. So what's next is going to be working with Joe again in probably uh, next year and a half. We're going to do a project called Ensemble 23, where we're going to uh, create orchestra music along with electronic music. And we're going to be uh, both focusing on performance of live music as well as more live recording. And it's going to be hopefully grant-based, where we're going to try to get a grant from uh, an artistic organization out there to help us fund the whole thing through an art grant. I think we got to get you some shades, though. I mean, you got to have some sunglasses. You got you to gotta, gotta start living the lifestyle now that you're a music producer. Yeah, the lifestyle. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still a Mac geek, dude. I can only live so much lifestyle. It, it sounds like the lifestyle has all gone into his equipment. It, absolutely. Just ask Mary. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, tell, tell Mary we, uh, we feel for her and all of the Mac Power user spouses feel for her as well. No, I'm so lucky to have such a supportive wife, let me tell you. Yeah. Uh, well, Victor, if there is a, a budding young artist out there who, who needs a producer um, or, or someone who uh, just is really interested in about this, how can they reach out to you? Uh, what, where's a good place to find you these days? Well, for me, you can find me on Twitter. It's V-I-C-T-O-R-C-A-J-I-A-O. 
Or if you want to email me, let me give you my email. It's uh, victormarycharlie1010, bmc1010, at gmail.com. And uh, if you are looking for those types of services, I'm happy to provide them for you, uh, you know, at a very reasonable cost. Sounds like a plan. Victor, it is always a pleasure to chat with you. I'm so glad to hear that you're well. I can't uh, can't wait to see what great success this this album goes to and, and beyond. And uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm really glad we got to geek out. And, and you guys can do it, too. You have everything you need at your fingertips, literally. Right. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, Victor. We'll talk again soon. Bye-bye. All right, Katie Floyd, you want to just jump into some listener questions? Yeah, we've, we've got a lot of listener feedback uh, this show. And let's start with a tale of woe from Rob. Yeah, Rob's Rob, man, that was rough. I This was the hardest one for me this month of <laughs> all the feedback. Uh, Rob sent us an email, says, hey, uh, could you please help me? I accidentally reformatted an external drive. So he has a four terabyte external drive, which, of course, what would you put on an external drive? Maybe all your pictures and your photos and videos and some of the most important stuff. And he was in disk utility and he also had a USB thumb drive. And, and he says it was too late at night and he was too, liar, too tired to notice. He thought it was formatting the thumb drive and instead he formatted the USB drive. Oops. And that's one of those things that like milliseconds after you hit that button, you've realized you've made a mistake. And, and what, what do you do? And so and it was, it's even worse because he thought it was a thumb drive. So he formatted a FAT32 and then he realized it was a... Um, uh, it was the wrong driver. I don't know if he realized at the time, but he he did go back and reformat it a second time. Yeah, that was probably. Yeah. But, you know, I do not blame him because I because I, you just panic and freak. And he says he the drive contained all his photos, his iTunes media folder, data archives. And um, and, you know, he said we had moved recently and I hadn't backed it up in over six months. And I, you know, just I just you know, he just made a mistake and he didn't know what to do. So. Uh, he asked me, what do I do? Uh, one of the things I did, because this was like when this one came in, I, I I was really feeling the pain. I actually brought in our friend James Coleman, who was the guest on the show recently. He runs that that Mac repair shop and and he he recommended um, an app. And we also talked about something like drive savers and, you know, drive savers is they have a clean room and they can go in and take it apart. But, man, it's really expensive. You're you're talking thousands and thousands of dollars to to take it to drive savers. Even then, though, you'd never know. I mean, if it was your entire family photo album and you didn't have a backup, you may be willing to do it. I don't know. But yeah, the the thing is, though, is usually you get one shot at this because the the more you tweak with that drive, the more you mess with that drive, the the less chance you have of recovering stuff. So, yeah, there there's some other options. But sometimes, you know, sometimes you want to take like your best shot first, though. Yeah. And, and you're right. Every time you touch it, you make it worse. So uh, what we ultimately resolved on was this app called ProSoft Data Rescue. And ProSoft makes this app called Data Rescue that can go in and recover some of the data. And I haven't followed up with Rob since I think his second attempt. I think he got some of it back and I think he was working on getting the rest of it back. But I think we had success. If you're listening, Rob, let us know what the ultimate result was. Yeah. Uh, ProSoft Data Rescue would have also been what 
what I was going to suggest. And I guess, again, it kind of depends on the circumstance. It sounds like Rob had a backup, but it was about six months old. So some of the data might have been recoverable from a backup and that would probably get him part of the way there. So, you know, this might have been an opportunity, you know, ProSoft Data Rescue is going to be a lot less expensive. I mean, significant orders of magnitude less expensive than going to somebody like DriveSavers, but DriveSavers is probably going to be your best bet at getting this data back. If it were me, depending on what the data was, I probably would take a shot with with a tool like Data Rescue. And there are many other tools. So if our Mac Power users, listeners have other suggestions of tools uh, for things like this that they've used successfully, I mean, don't just write us in with, oh, I've heard of this and I've heard, uh, here's a link to something. But if you have tools that um, you've used successfully, then feel free to send those in. Um, also, I found a Macworld article that our pal Chris Breen wrote. And I know Chris is no longer at Macworld, but he's he's got great work there um, about disk recovery tools. And Data Rescue was also the one that that he recommended. So I'll include that link in the show notes as well. And if you're listening to this and you have a drive with all your photo albums on it and it hasn't been backed up in the last six months, you have my permission to stop the podcast and go back it up. But you must come back afterwards. How don't you feel better? Yes. Well, I and think if you if you need help with that, I think we can refer you back to Mac Power Users episode 318, where we did a comprehensive episode on on backups. Yeah, so easy to get in trouble. And and the, the thing is, if you have everybody makes mistakes and, and it, sometimes it's not even a mistake. It's just a, a fire or, you know, some problem. Uh, this can happen to anybody. But boy, afterwards, when you think about how easy it would be to avoid this stuff, if you just had a. external drive that you were copying or if you had paid $5 a month to, you know, name your online backup service. So um, look into it because there's ways to do this. Yeah. I mean, and and what a lot of people don't realize is that like one of these online backup services typically will back up attached drives. I mean, there is a downside to having USB drives attached to your Mac. And that is you can accident things can happen to them. You can accidentally reformat them or they can be susceptible to, um, you know, if you end up getting malware or something like that on your Mac. The plus side too is that if you have a USB drive attached to your Mac, uh, these online backup services like Backblaze, like CrashPlan can also back them up as well. And so I've got a USB drive uh, attached to my Mac that's essentially a clone of my Drobo that happens every... um, I think it's every Saturday morning in the wee hours of the morning. Uh, Carbon Copy Cloner kicks off, clones the Drobo to that backup drive, and then keeps that backup drive mounted um, so that uh, that uh, Backblaze can back it up. Yes, and I've got a Drobo directly attached to my Mac, and it's it's copied the Backblaze constantly, which is nice. I think they lose money on me over at Backblaze. Pretty sure they make it. They make it up on people like my, you know, my mom and my grandpa, though. So yeah, that's what that's what works. Okay, uh, we heard from Lionel. Yeah, he's got a question about uh, using password schemes as opposed to password management apps. So I'm thinking we might have the same opinion on this. We'll see. Hello, Katie and David. This is Lionel from France. Love the show, which I discovered recently because I'm a very new Apple convert and I now wonder how I could ever get any work done uh, on any other hardware and software than Apple products. Uh, I keep hearing you talking about security and passwords and passwords managers, a very important issue, as we all know. But what I never hear you talk about is password schemes, which is metal schemes that enable you to generate unique 
unique passwords for each service. Like, for instance, you have a fixed number of numbers and letters, letters say A, B, C, 1, 2, 3, and then you inject into that uh, some parts of the service, of the name of the service you're generating a password for. Like, uh, you would take uh, some of the consonants, some of the vowels, possibly maybe shift them a little in the alphabet. So you have a mental algorithm that you can use that can be very devious, but simple, uh, that enable you to generate unique passwords for every service. And it seems to me that you have the best of both worlds. Like, you don't have a centralized password uh, with, 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 if it's compromised, then, uh, then you're, you're done. Uh, and uh, and also uh, you generate unique passwords for every service, so uh, I really don't see any drawback to that technique. And I was wondering what uh, what was your stance on that? Uh, love the show, keep up the good work. Cheers. I uh, I think uh, at a starting point, I know what you're going to say, Katie. Okay. We haven't even talked about some of what you're going to say, <laughs> but the uh, I think as a starting point, this is far superior to using one or two passwords at every website. Yes. I mean, let's just say that if you're not going to go with a password manager, um, this is way better. And um, so I, I will uh, compliment that. The, um, uh, the the concern I have is if someone figures out your scheme on one, then they they may be able to reverse engineer it everywhere. Um, the other thing about all of this stuff is I've been thinking about security a lot lately, you know, because in the news, you, you, you know, the Democrats keep getting hacked. <laughs> and the, uh, I got thinking, you know, the difference between passive and active hacking you know i haven't written about it yet max barking but at some point i will the uh, i think that a lot of the stuff we talk about on the show is very good protection against passive hacking which is i think what most of us experience where someone is just going to try and hack a million computers and if you like they're going to get the passwords off xyz website and then they're going to try those passwords at a bunch of other websites that's kind of it's not where they've they've picked you out individually and saying okay how are we going to get into this person um, I think the techniques we use in the show with something like a password manager, I think they're more they're more robust, not only for passive, but also active hacking. If someone was actively trying to break into your systems and they figured out that you're using a system, um, computers are pretty smart and they may be able to unwind your system pretty quickly. So I'd be a little afraid of that. Yeah. And I think the other thing is that if you are an active target, it's going to be it's going to be very difficult to to prevent something from happening, because we've seen that if someone's actively out to target you um, for something, then they're going to be all kinds of of things that they're going to use. They're going to use social engineering. Um, they're going to try to bypass your password. They're going to try to go directly to human weaknesses. They're, they're going to try to do phishing attempts. They're going to do all kinds of things. So there, there's no foolproof method. I think the key word here that gets me is scheme. And, and I know that that's a word that has multiple meanings, but it, it seems like you're just kind of trying to come up with a clever way around something. And I agree with David, this is certainly better than nothing. But I think it's, again, the big problem is what if someone figures out your scheme? But I think another problem that you have to look at here is what if something happens to you? Um, and, and so are you going to write down your scheme for somebody else so that they can know it if something happens to you and people need to be able to get access to your account? Um, what if something happens to you and nobody can access your accounts or nobody can access your documents? One of the beauties of having a password manager to me is that I have securely stored that information, but I can also give that key to somebody else that, that they can have access to, to things if I deem that the circumstances are warranted. And maybe it's just because my job that I deal with it every day when bad things happen to people and uh, unexpected things happen to people that I'm a little more 
you know, conscious of, of those types of things happening. Um, but I, I, that, that's another thing that I would worry about, but I definitely think it's better than nothing. Um, not my favorite method though. Thanks for uh, calling in from France though. I love yeah. the accent. <laughs> I, I love the accent and thank you for being a new listener. And, uh, Hey, if it works for you, I, I think it's definitely better than, than doing nothing. So keep up with it. I want to thank our next sponsor for this episode, and that is Gazelle. Gazelle is your trusted online marketplace for buying and selling used electronics. And you can do a couple of things there now. You can trade in your old device, that includes your iPhone, your iPad, your Android phone for cash, or you can now buy a certified pre-owned device, or you know what? You can do both. The season for new iOS devices is coming up. Maybe you want to get rid of your old one. Maybe you want to buy a newer one coming out used if you don't want to have to deal with a contract or any of those funny things. Gazelle can help you do both. And with Gazelle, you can even go online, see what your old device is worth, and check out their selection of certified pre-owned devices. Gazelle is great. If you want to go ahead and buy a pre-owned device, they've got tons of devices that are available in good and excellent conditions. Good conditions, so some gentle signs of wear and tear, but are great deals on great products. In excellent condition, you'll probably have a hard time telling that it's ever been used. Uh, These devices have been put through a rigorous 30-point inspection, ensuring that they are in perfect working order, and the devices are available for all the major carriers, AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile, and Sprint. And the benefits of buying from Gazelle is you're going to pay a fraction of the price. You don't have to get locked into a contract and they even have financing available on the Gazelle side. Now, if you've got a device that you want to get rid of, you should also look at trading into gazelle.com. All of their online offers are free. Simply find your gadget on Gazelle, answer a couple of questions about its condition, and you'll get an instant price quote. If you like the quote, lock it in. And they can either pay you via PayPal, send you a check, or mail you an Amazon gift card after they receive your device. And in some cases, if they find that your device is in better condition than you said, they'll even bump up their offer. They've done that to me before. And here's a tip. Here's a pro gazelle tip for you. We're getting ready to come into prime iOS and iPhone season. So go ahead and lock your offer in early. Typically, you have up to 30 days to send your device to gazelle. You know about when those new iPhones are going to be released. So lock your price in early to get the best possible offer. So when you're ready, head over to gazelle.com. That's G-A-Z-E-L-L-E.com. Click the link in the show notes, or when you check out, make sure you let them know that Mac Power users sent you. Whether you're buying or selling, you'll find some great options there. And thanks, Gazelle, for their continued support of the show. So uh, this is a question that we get quite a bit, so I figured we'd include it in the live show. Uh, next question we got is from Martin about using the scan snap to scan photos. And he wants to know if he can use his IX500 to scan photos through the document feeder. And I think the answer is yes, but. Uh, and it's yes, but on a couple of layers. Um, yes, but you may want to consider using that carrier sheet that comes with the scan snap, which is that um, plastic sheet that you can run through the scan snap for extra protection, especially if your photos are delicate, because uh, you want to make sure that nothing happens to your photos. If there's a jam or something, you want to make sure that your photos don't end up getting you know ripped or anything. Not that that happens often, but these are photos. Um, the other thing is you also want to make sure that you go into the scan snap settings and tweak those settings to have a special settings for photos, which I do, so that you're ramping the compression all the way down and the quality all the way up and that you're scanning these as, I think it's JPEGs rather than than PDFs is, is the option in there. And you can even optimally have them auto import into photos app. And also save that as a profile. You can set different profiles, set like a, a photo profile. And, and so you crank up all the settings like that and uh, save as a profile. So in the future, you just click one button and it's ready to go. 
Yeah. And, and I will tell you, um, I do this and I do this quite regularly, but I think what you have to remember is that the ScanSnap above all is a document scanner. And I don't have the stats off the top of my head because it varies by model, but I think you're going to find that you're going to top out at about 600 DPI for your scan, which may be fine depending on what you want to do, but you're not going to get the greatest scan of a photo that you would with using a flatbed or some other type of scanner. So if that's what you need, and I've, I've used the ScanSnap to scan photos, and it's great for doing that if you need to scan photos quickly for something, um, then by all means do it. The one thing I would also caution you is you want to make sure that your, your ScanSnap is clean. I have found that when scanning photos, it's real easy um, to get some grime or to get something on that ScanSnap, um, the mirrors that are, I guess it's the glass that's in there. And so you really want to make sure that you clean your scan snap really well before you do that, because you're going to see a line or or dust or particles when you're scanning photos. Something uh, we don't really talk about much with scan snap, but it is very easy to clean it. You can take the roller out, you can clean the glass and um, and put in your OmniFocus or task manager of choice like every six months to do that. And that will keep everybody happy. Yeah, we got a tutorial on that at at a ABA Tech Show recently. I'm gonna I'm gonna put a uh, I'm gonna put a link in the show notes to a YouTube video about uh, cleaning the scan snap. It's it's really easy to do, and you just want to make sure that you do it correctly. The other thing I would add to this is if you're gonna do a lot of photos, um, you could like I had a situation several years ago where we had a big pile of photos. My mom died, and we I wanted each one of my family members to get copies of them, and I was looking at buying a, a fancy photo scanner. And I didn't have the time to do it because with a photo scanner, you don't have the advantages of ScanSnap. It's not going to like zip them through fast. You got to like lay each one down and you know, that's just, it's a different process. So I ended up sending it out to a service, which, you know, you may want to look into if you've got a lot of photos rather than buy a scanner for that, you may just want to send them out. I did that. I actually, um, I posted something on this on my website and if I can find the link, I'll, I'll do it in the show notes. Uh, we, we sent out thousands of photos um, to scan. Uh, actually, there were slides a couple of years ago when um, when we were doing a, a big photo project for my grandparents when my grandfather was still alive. And I'm so thankful that we we did that. We did it just a couple of years before he got sick. And so he was really able to enjoy those. Um, but it was it was great when you're doing thousands and thousands of them. All right. Uh, Justin wrote in. He's going back to school. Uh, he says, I'm going to grad school for uh, econ. Good luck with that. Justin, that sounds like a pretty serious course, and he needs a new Mac. He says, should I wait for the new MacBooks or get one of these deals now? I would wait if you can. Um, the uh, We've talked about this a little bit in the past. The only, like, if you go to MacRumors.com Mac Buyer's Guide, just Google that. I think it's, like, one of the best sources for when to buy a new Mac on the on the internet. And, like, the whole Mac line is red right now. Like, don't buy except for the MacBook which just got recently updated. So, um, you know, it depends what you need, but if it sounds like he's looking for a MacBook, um, you either have the, uh, the retina MacBook, which is recently updated or the MacBook pros, which have been talked about a great deal, but we haven't seen yet. And if you can wait to see what the differences are, I think I would wait. Well, and I guess it just goes down to, can you wait? I mean, if you don't have a computer that you can use at all, you probably can't wait. And in which case I would say, just try to get the best deal you can on something and, and get something that will, you know, that you're either going to replace because you got a good deal on it or, or get something that you think is going to last you through. I mean, 
if I agree completely with David, if you can wait, I think it's going to be September, October before we see updates to the to the MacBook line. I don't know if we're going to see updates to the MacBook Air line. This could be the end of the road for them. Yeah, the um, and so if you can't wait, um, I would be looking at something like a 13 inch MacBook Pro versus the 12 inch MacBook. I think those are the two to be looking at these days. 12 inch MacBook is definitely power limited, but it's super portable so that that's where your decision point is uh but if you can wait i i think the new uh there's a lot of uh scuttlebutt about the new macbook pros i I think katie's waiting for one aren't you waiting i am waiting i'm absolutely waiting yeah so you know i think we'll see and and frankly i don't know it's going to be as late as october i wouldn't be surprised if we see it before then well the other thing is that the apple back to school deals are going on right now and traditionally, although you can go back and again, look at the Mac rumors buyer's guide and you'll see traditionally when the MacBooks and the MacBook pros are updated. Apple typically doesn't update the new machines during the time that that back to school promotion is going on. And I think they typically use that back to school promotion to kind of clear out inventory. Yeah, that could be it. I, I don't know what the story is. There's so many, there's so many rumors about it. One of them is they've got an OLED display across the function key row. And uh, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see what they do. It's been a long time since we've had really any significant changes in the MacBook Pro design. And and maybe the reason the the MacBook Air is becoming less important is I think the MacBook Pros may even get even thinner and lighter to the extent that, you know, there's not that much room to have something between a MacBook Pro and a 12-inch MacBook. I don't know. Okay, good luck with that, Justin. Let us know. Uh, Tyler wrote in as well. Uh, his email was titled, What's the Deal with Transporter? <laughs> we don't know. Yeah. We'll, we'll try to sort it out. Um, Tyler wants to know if we had any thoughts on the state of Transporter, if there were pros, cons, or alternatives. Uh, he's heavily invested in them. Honestly, David and I are heavily invested in them as well. As you know, they were uh, a fairly longtime sponsor of our, our show. I've got two of them. I know David's got a couple of them. Uh, My family has has bought them. So, yeah, we'd kind of like to know what the deal is with with Transporter 2. So the the deal, as far as we know, um, is that Transporter was bought out, uh, uh, I think, into last year. Yeah. Um, Transporter is still up and running. But I guess one of the concerns is, is that it seems to me that there has been a few flickers of, of downtime, perhaps more often than in the past. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a great idea and a great product. I hope it, it continues to work. We use them every week to produce the Mac power users. We keep shared data on the transporter. We share with the editor that way. I mean, it, it really is kind of linchpin to our operation here. And I guess if it stops working, we'll have to figure something out. Um, there's a few people kind of filling the the gap a little bit drobo has added uh, file sharing uh, abilities with um i don't know about two three months ago they came out with a an upgrade to drobo that does some of that um also synology has some options for sharing so i guess that's maybe the next move if we have to is we just we go to that type of sharing yeah um, there's also some apps like BitTorrent sync um, and I, I'm thinking about, I know I said this a couple of shows ago that I was thinking about installing BitTorrent Sync on my Drobo. I just haven't gotten around to it yet, but that will replicate a lot of the functionality of, of Transporter. I'm, David and I are still using it every week for our show production, but we have had the conversation of if we need to switch, what are we going to switch to? Um, honestly, I'm probably at this point going to switch to Dropbox just because it does everything and I'm okay with Dropbox. Yeah, well, but see, the problem was always that 
the expense, you know, with the transporter, you bought it once, you didn't have to pay monthly. And, um, but I, I don't know, we'll figure it out. We'll report back if we run into the problem. Uh, for now it's working and I guess we'll see maybe, you know, I don't know, maybe the people that bought it are getting ready to retool all the software. You just, you don't know. Yeah, it it seems that they are more focused on consumer type products than they are the the smaller cones that were designed for individual use. Yeah. But there's definitely a niche for that. Yeah. All right. Well, Simon wrote in, or actually he called in. He called in. He's got a question that I I think you might have some thoughts on, David. Hello, David and Katie. My name's Simon Ellis, and this is a question about uh, producing a multimedia publication. So that is a combination of text and video and audio. I'm particularly interested in producing something, a document that is uh, cross-platform, so not just for iOS, so rather than just going down the iBooks author route, uh, I'm thinking more like the kinds of uh, PDFs, David, that you produce alongside your iBooks. I'm particularly interested in the later stages of the uh, of your workflow. That is when you're um, working from your own text uh, to the uh, to the point at which it gets designed, so where video and uh, audio gets embedded or included in the materials, and then the pr- uh, production of the PDF. So I'd be really curious uh, if you might be able to give me a sense of that workflow. And uh, thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Simon. One of the things that I thought about uh, for this is Simon is basically looking to do an iBooks author book without iBooks author because he wants it to be more cross-platform. And there are ways to do this. I remember that our pal Serenity Caldwell, uh, who is about overdue, we need to have her back on the show again soon. Yeah, we've already it's it's already getting it's, scheduled. Is it on the books? Okay. Yeah. Um, but she did a lot of this for for MacWorld, creating their various guides. So um, I believe she talked about that in her original Mac Power Users episode that we had her on. It's it's now been years ago, but I'm not sure that there's any better source for that than than Serenity. So I'll put a link to that episode in the show notes because that might provide some guidance. But I know that you researched this pretty significantly before you finally settled on iBooks Author, and you do a PDF version of your Mac Sparky Field Guides. Yeah, well, I, I've been looking at other options the whole the whole time i mean uh, from the beginning from really 2012 when the first field guide got published um the idea was to give it to people in as whatever way they want it and the problem with my books is that they're not really books there's a bunch of embedded video and pictures and you know it's a media rich i mean just i just published the omnifocus video field guide it's three gigabytes you know so and that that is the problem when you put you know it's fine to put a little bit of video simon if you're going to make a because there are methods to embed and he was asking specifically with with respect to pdfs you can put media into pdfs i do it all the time as a, as a lawyer when i do briefs a lot of times i put some media and stuff in it because judges love that and um, there's no reason why you shouldn't, but if you put too much in things start breaking. And so when I started doing the Max Sparky field guides, I had done some tests where I created a PDF and I actually did embed the screencasts and I never did get one with all the screencasts in it. Cause when I would put maybe 20% of the screencasts in it, then the video file would break and then I'd send it to friends and maybe one in six could open it. So it was clear to me that the, I'm pushing the limits too hard, you know, to what Scotty always say, 
She can't take it anymore, to Captain. Yeah, she can't take it anymore. That's what I do to PDFs. In fact, I did the same thing to ScreenFlow with this new update to the OmniFocus field guide. It, it, I finally, I finally pushed ScreenFlow back. Apparently, what you do is you make it over three hours, and then things start breaking. But the, uh, so I, it just doesn't work. And so, Simon, the question is, how much are you going to do? If you're going to make it really big, uh, media-rich PDFs are not the way you're going to do. And ultimately, what I decided was. Uh, I will make PDFs of the books, but they will have no media in them, but I will give you all the audio files. If you go and buy one of my books as a PDF, you get the PDF and then you get folders full of all the videos and the picture galleries and all that stuff, because that's the only way it can really work. And the other thing I found out, even if I could make it work, a lot of people would be mad at me because they want to just get the book on their iPad and just read the book on an airplane. They don't want all the the other stuff because they don't have the data ability to to see it anyway. So um, what I would recommend is looking at the specific options available for you. iBooks author remains a good one. Amazon is starting to get more interested in media rich stuff. EPUB has come a long way in the last three or four years. So some, that may be the solution I think Simon needs is EPUB. Uh, but, but take a look at all those options and do some tests. But I don't think ultimately media rich PDFs are the solution for a um, multi-platform media rich book. Uh, let's go on. Yeah, we've got uh, some some feedback on our special event show. Uh, I am back from all of my weddings. The weddings are done. I'm over them. I'm putting a moratorium on weddings. Oh, really? Yes. Uh, I was going to share some news with you. Nobody's getting married anymore. <laughs> I'm over it. Um, but uh, Jared wrote in and said in episode 329, which is our special event show, we were talking about how to preserve uh, special event websites before we let the domain and hosting expire. And we talked about alternatives like printing to PDF or using PDF pen to suck them down. But he said that there's a Mac app store gem called Site Sucker, and I've put a link in the show notes, that's specifically made for this purpose. You point it to our URL, it'll download the entire website, HTML, site, style sheets, images, everything, and it makes a local copy of it and fixes all the links so you can browse it uh, from a local disk using Safari. And we heard from a couple people at SightSucker. What a great name, too. And it, it's got a vacuum cleaner as its icon, so that works. Uh, Diane wrote in about um, timeline and event planning. She said she had to figure out the travel logistics for a wedding weekend and people flying in and out of town, being driven to the venue, who needed to pick, be picked up and when, and all that stuff. Uh, so she happened to have Aeon Timeline, A-E-O-N, and it was just right for the task. She said the app started out as a spinoff from Scrivener to allow authors to figure out the story timelines in either real time or science fiction fantasy world timelines. And she says version two is on its way, but version one was great for figuring out the travel schedule for the wedding. <laughs> I thought that was pretty clever. Yeah. Why not? Uh, Catherine wrote in with a couple of questions and a correction about uh, photo slideshow feedback. Uh, first, I made an error when I said in photos, when you're using um, photos to create a photo slideshow, I mentioned that you can only have one song. Uh, that is not true. The interface makes it look initially like you can only have one song, but once you add the first song, it then pops up an option for you to add a second song. So you can add multiple songs within a photos app. So you can do that. Uh, but she also was curious about looping slideshows because, for example, we created a slideshow specifically for the reception that was just playing during cocktail hour. So how do you do this? And she pointed out that there are a couple of options. For example, if you're playing it in, in QuickTime, you could use the view loop movie option. Um, but what if you're playing it as a DVD? Because a lot of these venues have, you know, TV systems that are all connected together with a DVD, which was the case with our particular 
venue. And that actually caused me a lot of angst trying to figure out how to burn this to a DV number one was was incredibly difficult in this day and age. Let me tell you, burning a photo slideshow to a DVD, I had to download iDVD to be able to do this and good luck finding that. Um, thank goodness I had it archived on my Drobo. Uh, and, but, so what I did is I downloaded it to, uh, iDVD, I burned it to a DVD, but there is actually an obscure looping feature in iDVD. What you have to do is you have to set it up, uh, to play automatically. And then somewhere in there in the menu items, there's an option to make it loop. You got I, I searched in the menu items and there's like a little checkbox or something, but it's in there. You just got to hunt and dig for it. Yeah, that's rough. That's rough. I wonder how much longer people are going to want DVDs at these things. Well, I mean, again, you're you're probably dealing with with venues that have, you know, more antiquated technology that they're not going to update that regularly. Yeah, I still I mean, I still go to hotels and if they're going to have any kind of plug, it's going to be a 30 pin, you know, iPod, iPad or iPod plug, you know, the old 30 pin. You see, I still see it all the time when I go to hotels. Yeah, I still have one of those adapters in my travel bag for that very reason. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by 1Password. Check out 1Password for families and save 20% by going to onepassword.com slash MPU. 1Password has been a sponsor of the Mac Power Users for years, and we've talked about them many times. But something we haven't talked much about is this new service from 1Password called 1Password for Families. I want you to really consider this for your family. 1Password for Families, first of all, gives you all those great features that you already have with 1Password, like secure password generation, and even keeping an eye on the websites you work with to make sure they haven't been compromised. But if there's more than one person in your household, then you should really look into expanding that to 1Password for Families. Your subscription gets you access to all of the latest 1Password apps on Mac, iOS, and Android, and by the way, Windows is in beta. And it also acts as your family's digital safe deposit box. For instance, if you update your Amazon password, you don't have to go find your husband and kids to tell them that there's a new password. Instead, you just update it in 1Password for families and then share the appropriate information across to your other family members. 1Password is the easiest and safest way to share those 1Passwords or credit cards, or frankly, anything else that's too important to email or text. 1Password for Families is also a great way to get your children used to using safe password practices and teaching them about online security. With 1Password for Families, you decide who you share your information with and what they can do with it. Account management is simple and secure. With the 1Password for Families account, you get one gigabyte of secure online document storage, and they even have an item history backup, so you can go back in time up to one full year and recover passwords that you or your family members have deleted or changed. I can tell you that as soon as I tried this for my family, I was hooked and I bought a year. The team at 1Password loves the Mac Power users, and they've agreed to give all of the listeners 20% off their subscription to 1Password families or 1Password teams. To learn how to sign your family up for a 1Password for Families account, go to onepasswordcom slash MPU and make the MPU all caps. So once again, onepasswordcom slash all caps MPU and get 20% off 1Password for your family. Thank you, 1Password, for supporting the Mac Power users. Uh, got quite a bit of feedback on the keynote show, David. Yeah, we did. And it was all good. Good stuff. Chris wrote in about using keynote for animation. He said a, a couple of years ago, he had a client with a tight budget and they wanted an animation and 
you know, normally he'd go hire an animator and do all this stuff, but instead he just made it in keynote and he sent me a link for it. Maybe we'll put it in the show notes, but he did a, a keynote for, a, you know, just to animate a, uh, it's not really a presentation. It's just to get an idea across. He made like a little movie all in, in keynote. And I thought it was really good. Yeah. I'm throwing the link into it in the show notes. It's a, it's a video on a Vimeo. So when you see an odd Vimeo, we'll, we'll show that in the show notes. Uh, Kay also wrote in about uh, movie export. And this was actually what another really good email this month. So Kino interactive dot export is not coming back. Boom. There you go. With so much authority that I had to wonder where Kay is. You know, but anyway, but I, I don't think I think uh, he or she is correct that it is not coming back. Uh, relevant file format methods are deprecated. That's another like insider word. Makes me wonder. But instead, HTML export serves similar services, preserves a vast majority of animation and is compatible with Windows. So there is an HTML export. We didn't talk about it much because I've not had a really reason to use it. But you can generate an HTML and it's locally compatible with most browsers, but not Chrome due to Chrome security mechanism. So uh, if you're going to put it on a PC, use, was it Edge now? I think Edge is the big browser on Windows these days. Mm-hmm. You don't know. Okay. All right. Um, you can also host your pages online via web server with HTML, which is nice. And it's compatible with all modern browsers, including Chrome but you don't have to carry a USB drive around. Yeah. And Kay recommended like hosting on GitHub pages. So you could do that for free. Yeah, that's a good idea. If you prefer the QuickTime interactive format, you can export your slides to Keynote 09. Yeah. And I, I did talk about this before and then we make an interactive movie. Uh, however, it will not play interactively if you're using QuickTime player built into uh, to OS 10 Mavericks or above. I didn't know that. So even, even our little hack around it is not going to work anymore. So, well, but there is another hack is you could download QuickTime Player 7, which is still available. Yeah. And I, I DVD and QuickTime Player 7. I always download QuickTime Player 7 and I still have my pro license key for QuickTime Player 7 Pro. Good for you. Yep. Although, you know, it's funny to me, the I guess that I didn't say this on that show, but the necessity of having the ability to play it off a of PC, I think, is much less than it used to be. Because now when I show up to a venue, I may have three different devices on me that can play that keynote presentation. Soon your watch will be able to do it. Yeah, and I do have the connectors with me, so I can plug into just about any projector from those three different devices. So it's just not as big of a deal as it used to be. But um, interesting stuff there, Kay. Thank you so much for taking the time to to share that with us. I want to experiment with HTML export is what I really got out of that email. Yeah. Alan also uh, just chimed in and singing the praises of HTML export and again noted that we we omitted it, but he says it's particularly useful for presentations that are made in kiosk mode, but work well for any presentation. When you export the presentation, it builds a folder that contains all of the media and all of the code required, including animations, hyperlinks. And while not all animations are supported, most are. This means you can export the file to a web server and have your presentations live there. And possibly even more interesting, this is a good way to distribute your presentation on a flash stick, CD, or DVD or any other media, and then have it playable by anyone, whether or not they have Keynote. Thank you, Alan. Yeah, so I guess I blew it on that outline when it came to HTML export. <laughs> yeah, happens. That's why we have the Mac Power Users community, right? 
Yeah, the uh, we also uh, had a lot of feedback about Evernote and Katie's conundrum with the future of Evernote. Oh, I don't know what to do about it. So let me let me start off with a couple of thoughts. Uh, so my kind of plan is I'm going to try my Evernote subscription renews in December because it's it's like December 28th. It's almost the end of the year, and um, I have not heard a word from Evernote. Not one word. They have not emailed me. They have not said anything. They've not said, "Hey, when your subscription renews, it's going to be more expensive." Nothing. So I don't know whether that means when my renews, I'm going to be grandfathered into the old plan. I don't know whether they're just waiting until like the month or two before mine renews to spring the bad news on me. So if I was not like a Mac power users person who goes out and actively watches the news on this type of thing, if I was just your average Joe Evernote user, I would have no clue that Evernote was raising their prices. And maybe they're not going to, maybe they're going to grandfather in old users for a while. I don't know, but they have not communicated this well at all. But when I go into my Evernote account, it just says it's going to renew on December 28th. So I don't know. I mean, if it's going to renew in December for the same price that I've been paying for the last couple of years, I'm probably pretty happy to let it renew for that price. But uh, still, I'm keeping my eye on it. And so what I've I've done, David, please, please resist the urge to say I told you so. So you can just mute your mic right now. Um, or, I wouldn't do that to you, Katie. Or I'm, I'm making notes right now on the edit. Uh, is I have started the process, and I've started it this year, but I'll probably really complete it next year, of getting all of like my filing cabinet type stuff out of Evernote. Um, yeah. All of my statements and all. I've got a huge backlog of them in Evernote, um, and I'm just going to slowly get them out. I've created files and folders within Dropbox. Um, you know, starting with 2017, it'll be a clean, fresh year. All of that stuff from 2017 forward is going to go in there. Um, as far as the backlog, all of that stuff was in Evernote as PDFs. So it was pretty easy to take that statements folder. I exported all of that stuff. I still kept it in Evernote because, you know, that archive is there. I want to keep it. Um, and I exported all that into what I, I'm calling my Evernote export folder. Um, and then I just started, I changed all my Hazel rules. I changed all my Hazel rules. So instead of redirecting that stuff into Evernote going forward, it's redirecting it into a series of files and folders within Dropbox. And then I duplicated all those rules and pointed it at that Evernote export folder. And that was hysterical to watch Notification Center because then it popped up like a thousand notifications of Hazel moved and renamed this file. Hazel moved to this file. Hazel yeah. moved to this file, <laughs> uh, which was great because I didn't have to. Um, and I, I would say that got all but a couple of hundred of things out of the Evernote export folder. You know, there are a few that for whatever reason I don't have active rules for because they're old. Maybe it's a credit card that I don't have anymore or statement or something like that. A lot of that stuff, honestly, I could probably select all and delete because it's probably old. Some of it I may go through and manually move into folders, but um, but I'm I'm mostly out of Evernote for my statements and starting starting now, and then certainly I'll know that from 2017 forward, being my cutoff point, that all of that stuff's out. Well, I always felt Evernote really was superior to the files and folders method for search. I mean, you could have one app and you go search it, and it would show up on your phone and everywhere else. But it was. Great. And and let me tell you, and I talked about this, and it was the main reason that I used it, but I'm not planning on moving anytime soon, so I don't have to worry about it. But I I um I built this house and then I refinanced this house all while I had that with an Evernote. And it was amazing because you know, anytime you get a mortgage or something like that, just the, the hoops that you have to jump through and the documents that you have to provide. 
uh, it was wonderful. Yeah. Well, it, it is, um, it's really nice to have that search, but the portability of having it on a Dropbox is nice. I mean, I've been, we're going to do a future show where in a, in the not so distant future where we talk about iCloud versus Dropbox and some of the other, other cloud services. So a couple months ago, I moved all of my data over to iCloud and it was as easy as basically copying the folders over. And, you know, if I had put everything in Evernote, it would have been a bit much bigger problem. So that's where it's, the other nice thing is search has got a lot better on the native finders and on the native devices, although it's still, I'm getting into content for that show, but there's still some issues. We've, we've got some comments from listeners, but by and large, the, the, some of the many comments that we got from people on Evernote is they're really struggling to find a replacement for the web clipper. I mean, Evernote, and I'm not saying that I'm abandoning Evernote. I'm just looking for ways to reduce my dependency on it. I may look at some point at stepping down to the middle tier plan. But um, the, the Evernote, the two features that I love about Evernote, uh, the Evernote web clipper is great. Um, and the feature that I use quite a bit, and I, I know there are other apps out there, but I have never found one that's as good as Evernote, is their ability to scan business cards and get it right. Their accuracy is so good. Yeah. So uh, so Leaf wrote in with a recommending Notebook, and Notebook comes up occasionally on the show. I don't think we've given it enough attention, though. And he says, Notebook. We should clarify that this is not Notebooks by Circus Ponies. This is Notebooks. I don't know who makes it. It's a notebooksapp.com is the website. And um, the application is available for iOS, Mac, and Windows and syncs between all platforms via Dropbox. Files are not stored in a database, but instead in their original file format. So there's no proprietary file system to worry about. Hooray. No lock-in. In addition to all this, the interface is clean and the app is very easy to use. That's from Leaf. Um, He says it's developed by a single developer since around 2008. And it's been getting a lot of updates. And this is kind of like another option because everybody always talks about Microsoft OneNote. Well, Notebooks is another option. Yeah. Um, Dave wrote in and said that he recently exported all of his Evernote data to Quiver. And Quiver is not really an app that I have uh, know much about, but we'll put a link to it in the show note. Uh, he said, in part because it isn't the black hole that Evernote is, you can get your notes out and back them up. And the iOS version is still in beta, so it's not a full Evernote replacement, but it has tags, notebooks, excellent search functionality. And so far, he's really happy with it. Uh, so we'll include a link to that in the show notes as well. And then Chris wrote in saying, you know, we've talked about OneNote, Apple Notes, Google Keep, but he wanted to introduce to a new one called the uh, he learned about on the Linux Action Show, which is a podcast about Linux and open source software. It's called Simple Note. Well, Simple Note actually isn't a, isn't a mystery to us. That one's been around for a while. Um, and then also uh, an open source encrypted run your own server and control your own data at Turtle, T-U-R-T-L dot I-T, which sounds, um, uh, I don't know, I guess so. I guess that's a Mac app. I didn't, I didn't go check it out to tell you the truth. But Simple Note is one that's been around. It was one of the very first ones I used, especially when the iPhone came out and they didn't have a good notes app. Simple Note was the one that a lot of us used. Um, my my personal story with Evernote, you know, I've never been super into it and I've never used it for my file storage the way Katie did. So I just ran a script to pull everything out of Evernote and I've got it all in Apple Notes these days. I don't know what the future holds. Uh, but but I have I'm on that median tier, and the main reason is because we use Evernote for a portion of this the planning for this show for these live shows where we forward the email to a magic Evernote address and it gets in a notebook. So when we plan the show, but 
I've been trying, I know you've probably noticed, Katie, I've just been copying the the listener emails into the actual outline rather than put it in Evernote. I did. You messed up my formatting this uh, this month and it, you know, drove me crazy. Had to go back and fix all the formatting. I, but I just wanted to see if I could get by without using Evernote because I don't really want to pay for another year of it. So we'll see. Because why should I pay for when I'm only using it for one thing? <laughs> you know, there's got to be another way to do this. Yeah. Well, I think the other way to do it is to use Dispatch. Yeah. To send it directly into the Evernote notebook. Yeah. So you and your uh, Super iPad Pro can do that. Yeah, that's true. So I want to take a moment to tell you about our next sponsor for this episode, and that is our good friends over at SaneBox. Now, if you have not tried SaneBox yet, you need to, because the folks at SaneBox have told us that more than 66% of Mac Power user listeners who have ended up trying SaneBox have ended up subscribing to it. So there's a pretty good chance that you'll love it too. So here's what SaneBox does. It automatically filters your email for you, so you don't have to fuss with all of the unimportant stuff. SaneBox learns what email is important to you and filters out what isn't, saving you hours. It works with all kinds of email programs and services. You're not going to have to change a thing about your existing workflow. It's just going to add in and work. SaneBox has great email filtering. So the first thing they do is that they give you the Sane Later folder. So the first time you sign up, it will go in, it will analyze your inbox. You don't have to sit there and watch. And it's going to look at what's important to you based on your email behavior. It's going to keep only those most important emails in your inbox. And then everything else is going to go into the Sane Later folder. Now, SaneBox is fully trainable. And the more you use it, the more it will learn. So if there is an important in email in that Sane Later folder, just pull it back out into the inbox and SaneBox will learn and vice versa something in the inbox that you don't think is that important, put it in Sane later and SaneBox will learn from that too. And once you get the hang of that, you can start expanding in SaneBox's services. For example, they've got a black hole folder, so you can unsubscribe from emails with just one click. My favorite thing is the snooze folders. That means you can defer emails until they're more appropriate to handle. So it's great for deferring emails until like the next business day or emails that you get over the weekend. You can defer them until Monday. And those are emails that they don't disappear. They just leave your inbox and then they pop back when you tell them you want them to. So you don't have to worry about them and you don't have to have them at the top of your mind. There's also a great feature called Sane Reminders. So if you send someone an email, but you want to make sure that they get back to you, you can BCC like one week at SaneBox.com. And if your receiver doesn't reply, you'll get an email in one week to follow up. And you can even add more custom filtering email boxes. Like we've got one for the feedback email box for the show. Uh, so there's all kinds of things that SaneBox can do. There are various pricing plans. They start as low as $4 a month and they've got a 14-day free trial. This is really something that you have to see to believe. I signed up for the SaneBox 14-day free trial when they first came on as a sponsor to the show. It took me all of two days to realize that this was indispensable to my workflow. So go check them out over at SaneBox.com MPU to save on your first plan. And thanks to Sanebox for their support of the show. The feedback just keeps coming, Katie Floyd. Just keeps coming. Let's hear from Scott. It does. Here's Scott. Scott has a review of an email client that he says that we missed in our email show. So I said, if we missed it, tell us about it. And Scott did. So here we go. Hi, Katie and David. Scott Ulrich here from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Love your show. Listen to it every week and always find something new and interesting want to comment about episode 328 on iOS email. I use an app called Cloud Magic, and I love it very much. It works on iOS, OS X, and Android. 
I found it very easy to set up. I have three emails, including one on Exchange Server, and had no problems at all. What is great about this app is the screen is uncluttered, allowing me to focus on content in my replies. You can also swipe to delete, archive, or file, and in the latter you can choose your location. Also, you can select several emails at once and delete, archive, or move them. This integrates with several other apps, including my favorite being Todoist and Evernote, but there are lots more. And there's also an option where you can get a profile of the individual sending you an email. I love this app and highly recommend it. Would love to hear what you think. Anyway, keep up the great work. Thank you. Yeah, I, 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 I downloaded copy. I haven't got it all configured yet, but I have a whole folder of email clients, so why not add one more? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely think you should. The, uh, uh, Michael wrote in reasons to use your own personal finance software. And after episode 330, when we talked about that subject, he said, hey, I'm a CPA and I'm not a huge fan of Mint, but it has nothing to do with online privacy. My issue is with online services is that you don't control your data. And once you've used your personal finance program for a certain amount of time, the data becomes more valuable than the service. That is an excellent point that we did not make. Uh, he said, however, if you stop using the service, you lose your data. And unlike business software, there's no way to export your data. Why does this matter? Well, it's nice to be able to go back in time and see things such as what restaurant you ate at when you were vacationing in a city. So uh, that's an excellent point, which is not satisfied by Mint. I, I continue to struggle to find something I can heartily recommend in the personal finance software realm. I'm still using Quicken and it's... Yeah. Okay. I mean, I've been using it for years and it's, I don't want to say I use it gladly, but it's okay. Not a ringing endorsement. Yeah. It's, it's the least worst in my opinion of all the ones I've tried. There you go. Uh, and we also heard from Dave about dealing with a hacked computer. And uh, for the person who called an MPO, I believe it was Sherry about the possibility of a compromised computer and a possible malware, I would suggest using the program. ETRA check, E-T-R-E check, uh, C-H-E-C-K, which is a diagnostic tool used by people on Apple forums to help others out. She could probably post the problem to Apple forums, run this check and have someone look at the logs for her. I am well versed enough to look at the logs and find suspicious software on my own, but it's just one more idea. I've never heard of this, um, so I can't personally endorse it or recommend it. I don't know anything about it, but I certainly don't think it hurts. I think the advice we gave Sherry was to kind of back up and restore the data only from a backup. I would still probably do that, but yeah, I, I, would, I think it, it depends. In Sherry's case, I believe she knew she had been compromised. And to me, there's only one solution there. It's nuke and babe. You just got to start over. Uh, Peter, unfortunately, wrote in with a tale of woe, uh, and he was scammed as well. I feel like we're now going to get all these emails from people who were scammed, and I hesitate to share all of them, but I feel like when there's a when there's something that can be learned from it or something that can help other users, that it is. Uh, but the short version of the story is, is Peter went to sell his uh, 2013 MacBook Air on eBay because he had bought a new one, and within a day it sold, uh, buy it now, for $950, and Peter's in Australia, so 950 Australian. I don't know what the currency is there, uh, to someone in the United States, which always makes me a little nervous when you're dealing with international transactions on eBay. But he received an email from eBay, and this isn't a video podcast, but I'm using air quotes here, saying that payment had been received. So he packed it up, went to the post office, shipped it off. 
Problem was he never actually received payment because the email wasn't from eBay. It was a fake email um, and his laptop was halfway around the world by the time he had figured out that payment wasn't actually in his PayPal account. Um, it does have kind of a happy ending and I couldn't tell from his email whether it was coincidentally a happy ending, um, or whether someone was actually able to help him. Um, he said, unfortunately, neither eBay or PayPal could help him because the email wasn't sent by eBay and PayPal had nothing to do with the transaction, but he was able, um, to contact both the, uh, Victorian police, the Australia federal police and NYPD. And finally, it was Australia Post who managed to somehow put a stop on the package, requesting it be returned to sender. And ultimately, it took several weeks, but the the package was returned to him. But the the moral of the story is obviously make sure you get that PayPal payment uh, before that you actually ship it. Um, I, I, you know, there are certain protections if you use eBay and you use PayPal, but it sounds like in this case, someone directly set out to scam him by buying it and then crafting a fake email. Uh, it was basically a phishing email, knowing that he was selling it, knowing that he was looking to ship it. Yeah, there's like a whole subcategory of a fraud that involves making you think you've been paid. So whenever you're doing something that involves getting paid remotely, don't just rely on an email. You know, call the bank. Okay, uh, you're right, Katie. We, we do. We, we're getting a lot of those, and it's sad. But the uh, but be be aware. And I always feel like kind of sharing these stories helps our listeners help people in their lives because I think a lot, our listeners aren't necessarily going to get caught in this as much as the people around them will. Um, but be careful. Um, DXO one. I talked about that fancy pants camera I bought that plugs into my iPhone, and uh, heard back from Ashish who said, "Hey, uh, based on you talking about it, I ordered one, and I love it." Says there's no going back, which is great. I had a, a good friend visit who has a very fancy SLR camera. And we, you know, as as you do when you visit the Sparks household, we went to Disneyland and I was looking at the pictures he was taking versus mine and his were better. But I was looking at the bag he was carrying and all the nonsense he had and his pictures were not geo tagged and you know, all this, all the problems with his pictures. I'm like, you know what? I'm perfectly happy with this DXO one. It continues to be a device, I think, that is satisfactory to people who like nice pictures but don't necessarily want the most fancy pants pictures you can take with an slr but boy if that's you it's it's the right one yeah all right uh we also got an email from dan this was one of the first bits of feedback uh he sent in very quickly that we got about our amazon household show We'll probably have more on the next next show, uh, but because that show just came out the same day that we're recording this. But uh, Dan says that he uh, his brother has Amazon Prime and Dan gets free shipping through him. So it sounds uh, Dan may be grandfathered in through those old sharing your shipping benefits. Uh, and Dan says he pays his brother for Prime and just said his brother could keep the full benefits because he uses them more than he would. When Household was announced, uh, Dan took a look at that and was excited until he read the details that said that they would have to share one wallet and credit and debit cards and did not like that idea. Uh, Dan wants to make his own purchases on his own account that he only has access for and didn't like the idea of their history being commingled and didn't like anyone else having access to his payment methods. So... Pros and cons with Amazon's household. It seems like it really is designed for people who are within the same household. This is obviously a workaround to get, uh, you know, to share your prime benefits with someone. And, you know, these are kind of the the restrictions that Amazon puts on it to keep people from just sharing it with with others. So I guess if you're comfortable doing that with a close member of your own family, then you can. But obviously there are reasons they limit it. I wonder if at some point they'll just pull the legacy 
prime sharing out from underneath us and just say, you know what? You can no longer share it. Sorry. Then I'm just going to have to buy prime for people yeah. as a gift. <laughs> okay. Well, well, why not? Be- right. <laughs> because somehow it's become my responsibility. Yeah. Uh, we talked about those Eros last month. They sent us a, um, uh, and I actually bought some additional, uh, this new Wi-Fi device that's kind of remarkable. And a couple of people had questions about them. Um, Trevor wrote in, he said, did you replace the airports or add equipment? He says, in the section on Eros where you mentioned extending the Wi-Fi in your wired house, I'm wondering if you were using routers such as an airport throughout the house before uh, that you replaced three airports with Eros or if it was additional equipment where there was none before. Uh, for my case, I had an a time machine and an airport extreme. I had two devices. I had the airport extreme upstairs and the time machine downstairs. Uh, I got three Eros and I bought another couple because I ended up wanting to extend into the backyard. Um, and they are far superior to the two Apple devices I had before. And, and the way it works is different because the Eros have two different bands. They're actually... They're doing two different things. So they're they're basically talking and chewing gum, whereas the as I understand the Apple stuff could only talk or chew gum at the same time. So it, it is a significant improvement. Um, having well, they're re- sending and receiving simultaneously on yeah. dual bands. Yeah. Um, Doug had a question about Eros and AirPlay. You know, David, I know you've got that fancy Sonos system, but uh, Doug wanted to know: Does Eero work with AirPlay? He says, for example, I have two Bose speakers that he currently plugs in via mini jack into an AirPort Express, but Eero doesn't have a mini jack. Um, could he use his airport express network to the Eero? And well, the answer is yes. And I do just this. I've got, um, an airport express in my office that I have set up to a pair of audio engine, a two speakers. And, um, it did not work initially. And I was like, oh man, I'm going to lose my, my airport, uh, my airport express and my, my speakers in my office. What am I going to do with this? And then I just started thinking, I was like, Katie, you idiot, your network has changed. Of course you're of course, your airport express isn't going to work because it's now connected to nothing. Um, so once I went back in and launched the uh, the Apple airport device setup and then basically reset up that airport to join the Euros, uh, it worked fine. Set it up to, to join that network. And I do not have the airport rebroadcasting the network. I just have it set to join the network and not do anything but but airplay. So it's a little expensive solution because it's basically just a $99 you know, airplay dongle, but it works. Um, and some general listener tips and workflows. Jeff wrote in with alternatives to text expander and windows. Uh, Ruben came on last month and talked about his options and Jeff recommends auto hotkey. He says it's uh, less complicated and uh, it's easy to use. Uh, he uses it on windows. And if he wants to get very sophisticated, he can use all the cool, um, all the options in auto hotkey. He says it also does not require installation. So uh, he was using it on a remote server with no privileges, which is nice. Yeah. And uh, last week or last Mac Power Users Live, we had Taz, you know, the guy with the amazing voice. Yeah. Come on and talk about the details of his dictation workflow. And basically what he had is he would dictate and he would send it to a Mac mini home server that would then use drag and dictate to transcribe it and then send it back to him as text. And we had so many emails about people wanting more information on how to do that, because it's basically like having your own dictation assistant at home and living in your little Mac mini. 
Um, and so Taz apparently got inundated with those emails as well. And he wrote in to tell us that he has written it up. So he has written up all the details of his home transcription server. It's on his website at tazgoldstein.com. I'm going to include a link in the show notes. And I think I'm going to set this up too. There you go. Um, what about tech you're playing with this this month? You want to go first? Uh, yeah. So I, ugh, I bought one of those iPad uh, smart keyboards. Why, why do you say that with dread? What? Well, because it's just, ugh, I didn't want all this stuff. Now I've got all this stuff. It's not that much stuff at Katie Floyd. Really? It's not. Yes. So I bought the cover. Yeah. Well, and then I had to get the back case to go with it too. So I, I bought the uh, 9.7 inch smart keyboard cover for the iPad Pro. And then I also bought the incredibly way over ridiculously overpriced Apple silicone back cover. Uh, because it was really the only cover I could find that would nicely complement it. And because of where I put my iPad Pro every night on my nightstand, I was really worried. I wasn't worried about the iPad. I was worried that the the camera that sticks out on the iPad Pro would scrape up my nightstand. So um, I bought this for the for the nightstand. And uh, I, overall, I've been happy with it. It has added some weight and some bulk to the iPad Pro, but the iPad Pro is still purseable. It can still go in my purse. And I kind of like it. I have found myself, you know, sticking my iPad Pro in my purse, taking it to more places, um, using the keyboard. So I like it. I'm pretty finicky about my keyboards. This is definitely not a keyboard that I would want to type tons of stuff on. But, you know, if I'm sitting in court and I want to take notes or if I've got a few minutes and and want to pound out a couple of hundred words, it's definitely far, far superior to the on-screen keyboard. If I was going to really write a lot or just take the iPad solo somewhere, I might take an external Bluetooth keyboard. But, you know, it's the right size. It's the It helps a lot. So I like it. Here, here's my one quite about it. And I've had it for about two weeks now. I cannot figure out how to fold it. I don't know what's wrong with me or what's wrong with it, but it, it just does not work in my mind. I can't figure (laughs) out how to like, every time I go to, to, um, you know, stand it up to, you know, like if I'm going to watch a movie or if I want to prop it up to actually type on it, on the glass itself, I, I have to like stop and think about it and then trial and error every, every time. But the nice thing is you always have a keyboard with your iPad, which yeah. for our generation is a good thing. Uh, I'll tell you, I'll tell you the thing I don't like about it is the viewing angle is pretty steep. It is. In fact, it's, it's weird. The viewing angle is wrong on both of those keyboards on the iPad, the big iPad pro it's too deep. You know, the thing leans back too far in my opinion. And on the little one, it's too steep. Yeah. The other thing that I don't like about it is I don't think the magnet is quite strong enough. One of the beauties of having, because I previously had a fairly inexpensive, basically knockoff of the Apple cover, which was, it's an all in one piece where the back wraps around and is connected to the front cover. Um, And so I could actually hold it, not that you should, but I could hold it by that front cover. And, you know, if I just grabbed it by the front cover, it wasn't going to break. It wasn't going to fall. And this will definitely separate because it's just held on by that little magnet if you hold it by the front cover. A, a little hack for that problem I was just talking about with the big iPad Pro. If you have the big, super glue. No, I was going to say, <laughs> going back to the viewing angle problem, if you've got the big iPad Pro, my hack for it is I'll put the pencil behind the iPad Pro and in front of the cover like wedge. And that just gives it a little bit more uh it just raises the the screen just a little bit and that's usually enough for me to be fine so i use i store the pencil sometimes behind the ipad pro if that makes sense okay 
Um, okay, so tech I bought this month. I am. Um, I have always heard everybody talking about these noise canceling headphones, and I always thought I didn't need them. I don't fly that much, and then, um, but I'm I'm cursed. I I don't think I've ever shared this before, but when my youngest daughter was like two or three, we were coming back from Disney World, you know, and it's it's like a five hour flight for from Florida to California. I don't know what we did, but she screamed the whole flight. I mean, she literally screamed the entire flight. And everybody on the flight was looking at me funny. And what are you going to do? The kid's screaming. I I don't know what to do. I mean, if I had like Benadryl, I would have given it to her, (laughs) but I didn't. So and then she fell asleep as we came in for landing. It was it was just classic. And ever since then, I have been carrying this karmic balance on airplanes where when I get on an airplane, I always get seated next to somebody that's that's really too big to be sitting in the chair or I um I have somebody with a screaming kid behind me. It just every time I get on an airplane, this happens. So when I flew up to San Francisco for WWDC, uh, I had the same thing, crying baby behind me the whole trip up. And, you know, I, I felt bad for the parents. I didn't give them the look because I know I've been there. But I also wanted to avoid that. So I decided to get some noise canceling headphones. And uh, I bought the Bose Quite Comfort 35. It's their new Bluetooth um, noise canceling headphones, and I really like them. In fact, I got on the plane to come home, and there was another crying baby because that's what happens to me. And I just flipped the switch, and the baby just went away. I I didn't even know it worked that well. It was so awesome. But uh, if you do any amount of flying, uh, I would recommend getting these Bose headphones. They're really nice. They're also super comfortable. Years ago, I got a pair of headphones in the speaker bag at Macworld. They gave us headphones, you know, because you were speaking and they weren't. I'm, I'm wearing those headphones right now. <laughs> They're fine, except when you do a long podcast, your ears, my ears would get sore because of the way they yeah, might. We're, we're hitting about the point where my ears are getting a little sore. Yeah, exactly. Well, these new ones, I could wear, I could be wearing these things all day. They're, they're just built around whatever they've done. I mean, obviously they've come a long way since I got those headphones, but they're super comfortable in addition to being able to make babies quiet on airplanes. So uh, I know they're a little bit more expensive than some of the other options, but, you know, just go all the way and get the Bluetooth, get the Bose, and you'll be very happy next time you get on in the plane. Yeah, I'm just thinking I'm going to have to, because I have some noise-canceling headphones, but they're wired, so I'm going to have to replace all those now, aren't I? Maybe. You don't know. All right. Well, we're running a little bit over, so I think that's probably going to wrap it up for this episode. Uh, we do want to thank our sponsors, Market Circle, Gazelle, One Password, and Sanebox for their support of the show. Um, if you've got stuff that you want to inc- have us include for the next live show, you can send that to us by sending it to feedback at MacPowerUsers.com or sending it to Twitter. The show is at MacPowerUsers. I'm at Katie Floyd and David's at Max Sparky. Make sure you use that hashtag AskMPU, though. We'll see you next week. Thank you.